Hello, we're back. Welcome, friends. Welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And this project is for you and I together to work through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're well into this job, and we're two and a half years into what I believe will be a 10-year process. I do hope that you're appreciating it, enjoying it, benefiting from it, and I'm thankful that you're here, even if you're here for the first time. And if you are here for the first time, please hang around at the end where I'll tell you how you can connect with this ministry and receive the other free Bible study resources that I provide. I've entitled today's message, What is Our Job Description as Christians? In this episode, we're going to embark on an exploration of Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 24, a lengthy section of scripture where we see Jesus send out a wider group of disciples on this unique mission. But this scripture, I believe, provides for us a compelling job description for what it means to be a disciple, a disciple of Christ for every, every single Christian believer. So thanks for being with me. And we'll launch off and pick up where we left off last time at Luke chapter 10. I'll see you at the end. Bye for now. Okay, friends, here we are. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 24, a lengthy passage of scripture today. And I'm just going to read, begin by reading the entire passage, and then we'll work our way pretty much through it verse by verse, as is, as is our normal style. And at the end, I'll try and pull it all together for us. So I'm going to read the first 24 verses all in one go. And it tells us this. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two, ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking, whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there, and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for this town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who has sent me. 
the seventy-two returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At this time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, as you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Okay, we'll just pause. That's the text we're going to cover today. Now, in this uh, today's episode, we're going to explore, well, let's be honest, this is a lengthy passage of Scripture, isn't it? Uh, but we see, if we take it at face value, what it actually reveals in terms of narrative is, is a fairly straightforward, coherent story. The passage commences with instructions directed at all these individuals who Jesus is preparing to send out. The instructions encompass the initial 12 verses, and they could aptly be described as a sort of job description. However, we see an integral part of this job description unfolds in the section that follows. That would be verses 13 to 16, where Jesus sternly pronounces the woe that will fall upon those who rejected the message that they're taking. And then in a third part of the sort of preparation passage, that's verses 16 and 17, it marks what happens after they return from this first mission. Now, this aspect of the narrative, I believe, is crucial as it ties together and reveals for us the overarching theme of the mission, of the reason for sending them out, and how he reflects on that upon their subsequent return. You see, upon their return, Jesus chooses to take time with them and impart some spiritual insights to reflect together and is a focal point of understanding this passage, and that's the section verses 17 to the end of 24. So we're going to look at the specific instructions given to these 70, 72 people by Jesus, and we need to take a little time in exploring this, as Jesus uses, employs various metaphors in this. For instance, in verse 7, he appoints them and sends them out by two by two, and he tells them to go to every city and all the places that they should go. Now, for context, if you've been with me as we've journeyed together through the Gospel of Luke, it's evident that Jesus is on the verge now of heading into what today, or recently we call the Transjordan region. This is the geographical area east of the Jordan River. The Roman-controlled area of Palestine in that day was a region between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. But it's noteworthy that this area, which is, of course, the original Israel, included land 
east of the Jordan River as well. Now, most of Jesus' ministry so far has been concentrated in the northern part called Galilee, between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. Jerusalem, of course, was uh, located in the southern part and lies between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. So notably, it is Luke here that provides an extensive ministry account of what goes on in this region, which, as I said yesterday, isn't really referred to much in the other gospel accounts. So what we see here in this passage is Jesus dispatching, well, 35 teams, if you like, 70 individuals paired into teams of two. And he tells them to go, namely to this specific area, even naming towns and cities within it. Now, the 12 disciples had previously been sent out most likely just to the northern part of Israel, but Jesus is now widening and extending the reach of the mission to include this area east of the Jordan River. The significance of them sending them out in this way is deeply rooted in his overall widening strategic plan and is established and a connection between the instructions and the subsequent phases of the mission and the description of it which will be unfolded for us over the coming days and weeks. So what we find here is that these missionaries, if you like, they're sort of forerunners. And in verse 1 it says they're paving the way for the appended journey of the, that the good news will take and follow them in a sense. In these opening verses, in verse 2, we see Jesus acknowledge just the massiveness, the vastness of the mission that is hand. Also commenting on the scarcity of workers, laborers, and urging them as part of their mission to also pray for the Lord to send more workers so that this harvest, using the agricultural metaphor, can be brought in. So what that really does, it highlights the fact that this is going to be a collaborative task, doesn't it? That's the nature of the mission, the task at hand. Evidently, this mission, Jesus is saying, yes, I'm entrusting it to you, but it's something that you cannot accomplish on your own. Notice in verse 2, it portrays the people who are on this mission as laborers. But also, in these opening verses, warning them of the dangers of this role sending them out in this way is in a sense likening to send lambs out among wolves this image is meant to convey both the difficulty and the danger that is inherent in this mission and of course by the use of the term lambs then in that is obviously the metaphor that lambs indeed need their shepherd for protection so Jesus is emphasizing here also their need for a guiding, a guiding presence to shield them from the impending dangers they will face and encounter in the mission field. So these initial verses, they serve not only as instructions, but the identity of their roles as workers, laborers uh, who are being sent out into the field, the harvest field. They are forerunners, forerunners the beginners of this new mission who are facing a formidable task and are in a sense vulnerable lambs in need of a shepherd, a task that would continue throughout history right down to us today as disciples and messengers of God also in our way. So moving on to the next segment, which is in the instructions, the practical instructions, Jesus is addressing 
all the various practical aspects of the ministry, including even, in a sideways way, referring to financial support. He actually instructs them, interestingly, not to carry money with them. And also there's a strange verse where he appears to advise them against greeting people along the road. Now, I don't think this is meant to be taken actually, literally, but it's, uh, it's sort of underpinning the message that, A, by not having stuff with them, they should rely on on divine provision, but also the fact that this mission needs to have their singular focus and they're not to be distracted and wasting time on it. So uh, two things at the same time. One is to get out there and get on with the task and also to understand that in doing it, the primary emphasis needs to be that their needs will be met by the Lord. It does say that the labor is worthy of compensation and that the shepherd will ensure their care. So that's a reminder and comfort to them. But I think the comment about not greeting people on the way is primarily really just meant to signal a need for a focused, undistracted commitment to their mission. So in a sense, you can see that these instructions, well, they cover not only the spiritual aspects of the missions, but the practicalities as well. It encourages them on the one hand to trust in divine providence, but at the same time, we see in verse 5, the, Jesus introduces the idea, the culturally relevant idea of that time of the giving and receiving of hospitality. You see, as the 70 go into towns in pairs, they are to accept, note, the first invitation they receive to stay in a home. They are to offer a greeting, a greeting of peace, an expression of peace, and they then wait to see if it's returned. And this is not just a formality of like a, a like a, a correct cultural greeting, but it is, it, it, it is a test to see if they can recognize that the character of the host is in the right place, so to speak. Then concerning the stay, in verse 7, Jesus rem reminds them to stay in the house and appreciate any hospitality that offers and to eat and to drink whatever that host provides. The instruction not to move from house to house is interesting, isn't it? We've actually been this before in the original commission of the Twelve, and it indicates uh, that there should be a loyalty and that they should willingly and contentedly respond to the first and any invitation that they receive. It emphasizes that they need to trust in the Lord to provide for this provision for them through these people that he's brought them into contact with and to try and allow the fact that a situation doesn't arrive where local people are attempting to curry favor and that the disciples or the missionaries, if you like, that they begin to promote themselves by moving through better and better hosts. Now, the instructions take another practical turn in verses 8 and 9, where it transitions from talking about the hospitality situation to the mission itself. These guys are commissioned to do specific things, to go out, to preach the gospel, but also to heal the sick, but primarily to declare the kingdom of God, to say that the kingdom of God has come near this day. Now, the distinction here is crucial, indicating that the kingdom is near, suggesting, yes, it's a present reality and it's arriving and they're going to witness it and have it demonstrated amongst them at this time, but that this is not yet the complete manifestation of that kingdom, not yet anyway. And then it talks about a situation if a city or a town rejects them and Jesus 
instructs them, like he did the original 12, just to simply shake the dust from their feet, again, symbolically signifying the sort of spiritual severance of any connection, whilst at the same time warning those people of the consequences of rejecting that message. And interestingly, Jesus states that the judgment for such rejection will be even more than that seen by Sodom. So in these instructions for these first 70 additional disciples, additional workers, laborers, missionaries, God here is providing a completely comprehensive guide of how they should approach their oncoming mission, addressing the practicalities of the journey, the nature of the mission, and how they should deal with rejection and also explaining the consequences of or and accept or rejection of acceptance or rejection of that offer that they're making as they progress. So really, I would say this passage serves as a blueprint for mission for anyone who would bark and bark on a roll in any way as a messenger of the kingdom of God. So in summary, Jesus outlines this mission as fairly straightforward. Go out, preach the message of the kingdom, heal the sick, and if rejected, simply move on and not taking it personally. The instructions include a reminder that all places will receive the message, but those who reject it, the responsibility is their own, and judgment for them will be most severe particularly because they're rejecting something in spite of seeing the kingdom demonstrated through these miraculous acts. The essence of the instructions, I believe, at their core are still applicable to believers today. We too are called to preach and share the message of the gospel, the good news. We too are called to pray for the sick and to proclaim the good news. So for us, it should definitely prompt a sort of reflection for any contemporary believer on our call to share the transformation of message of Christ with the world and how we should go about it. Jesus speaking metaphorically about Capernaum at that time points out that although some places are thought of as exalted in terms of worldly times, we can really test and understand where that place is based on its reception to the gospel message. Pointing out using this picture of Capernaum seen as a great and blessed place actually been ultimately brought down to Hades by its rejection of the gospel. This is symbolic language here, but it emphasizes the dichotomy between the individual responses of people and the collective fate of the cities that they live in. And this exaltation comes, is mentioned, that will belong to those who embrace Jesus' teaching, whilst at the same time always setting it within, demonstrating the other side of the coin about the impending judgment that will fall upon those who reject this message. In fact, I think the main point of Jesus putting this in at this point is he wants to emphasize to the disciples to encourage them that in essence that those who are rejecting them are not really at core rejecting the messenger personally, but they're rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting God's plan for them, they're rejecting the one that God has sent. And then in the closing part of the passage, we see this wonderful section where the messengers return 
and we see that, well, we can almost sense their joy. Their excitement is almost palpable. It's seeping out of the text, isn't it? They report not only the fact that they've preached the gospel, that they've witnessed successful healings, but they say they've also found that they've had authority over demons in Jesus' names. Now, they seem almost surprised by this, but their heightened sense of enthusiasm is expressed from the fact that they've discovered through the active uh, participation in the mission that they had powers above and beyond what they expected, that the powers they had seen and, and witnessed had exceeded even their initial expectations. They'd been instructed to heal and to preach, but the authority over demons, it seems, was an unexpected and not surprising, a rather exhilarating discovery. I think this illustrates and underscores the dynamic nature of the Christian mission and the power, the unbelievable power that has been vested in us. And the return of these 70 guys here with joy showcases the tangible impact that can have on your life if you just simply go out there in obedience to Jesus' instructions. It will not return void. In fact, it will return blessed. So this serves as a pivotal moment in their affirmation and should be read as an important moment for all of us to acknowledge if we claim to be messengers of God. Because what is revealed here is the profound authority and transformative power that we have access to in the name of Jesus and are able to use not just in their ministry in that day, but in our ministries today. So their joy is a joyous report about the fact that they've had authority over demons. But Jesus acknowledges that, is thankful for it, but then he provides and gives a crucial perspective on this. And we need to pay attention closely, friends. He tells them, yes, that is true. But remember that he himself, that is Jesus himself, he has witnessed Satan fall like a lightning from heaven, signifying that the real power is in the fact that by what Christ has done will signify the eternal defeat of Satan as his adversary. Jesus acknowledges the fact that they've been given authority in this ways, but he says that this powerful affirmation of witnessing their victories over spiritual opposition must be held with caution and within context. And he says, "You, yeah, all of this is true, but you must not find your primary joy, your primary purpose in these things. Instead, he says, what will you need to know, what you need to focus on, well, he urges them to rejoice, in fact, is the thing that the fact that their names are written in heaven, that their names are written in the book of life, and that anybody who responds to the gospel message in this way, will the same will be true of them. So the real joy should not be in the miraculous things themselves. They are there to bear testimony to the truth that when embraced brings about the fact that people's names are written in the book of life. So this shift in emphasis, yes, they come back excited at what they've seen, but he's shifting the emphasis to say the real eternal significance here is in the relationship of grace that God has extended to ordinary men and women and the fact that they've responded to that. Yes, the miraculous may have encouraged them, given them insight to see it, but its response to the core message is the thing that saves them. 
So it's a reminder for everyone on mission to keep the priorities in place. Keep the first thing the first thing. Don't get sidetracked by any, well, not even this sort of miraculous stuff, but don't get sidetracked wholly by that. Don't also, even more importantly, get sidetracked by any earthly, worldly measure of success or accomplishment in any way at all. Evidence of wealth or prosperity in an individual or in a community or in a church is not necessarily evidence of the blessing of God. It might be, but it is not necessarily, it's not even the primary thing. The emphasis should be on the joy that we are able to hold on to by recognizing that our names are being written in the book of life. Our name is placed securely in heaven along with those who respond to the message, reflecting the profound importance of God's grace and keeping the core and the focus on God's salvation. This act of having our names written in heaven symbolizes an insurance, a sort of a contract, if you like, that our place in heaven, in God's eternal kingdom, is in fact secure. And in the closing verses, Jesus is respond to all this by rejoicing in his spirit, expressing his gratitude to his Father God in heaven for what he's doing in earth. Interesting, he then adds, that all divine revelations are not limited to just the so-called wise and the great or the prudent and the good, but that God is in the process, God is in the job of graciously extending all of these gifts all of these powers, all of these experiences, all of them are extended to even those who are but babes in the faith. More importantly, those who approach him with a childlike faith have access to the full power and revelation of God. The exclusive knowledge of the Son by the Father and vice versa underscores the unique bond that is available to us with the Holy Spirit in the power of the Trinity, but it is not something that can be perceived, understood, or, or worked out through any form of earthly wisdom. It encourages us to ultimately find joy in the grace of God and his assurance of eternal life, and that that is achieved through nothing of our own merit, none of our own abilities. Rather, it is an external success in the plan of God that is administered by his Holy Spirit through his people. So the essence of this message of the 70, 72 that's being in out is there to give us the profound truth that God reveals his full gospel, his full spiritual insight, his full spiritual abilities to anyone, I say anyone, who simply approaches him in humility and with childlike faith. And this distinction should serve as a reminder that spiritual understanding can never be obtained through human wisdom, through having an IQ. It can also not be attained through any form of self-sufficiency. Rather, it is accessed and attained by assuming a posture of humility. Physically, maybe, spiritually, definitely. A posture of utter dependence upon God. In fact, those who exalt their self and try and trust in their own resources or their own wisdom are going, I would suggest, it reveals here, are going to be left, in fact, in spiritual ignorance, whereas those who simply approach God 
like a little child, like he demonstrated earlier a couple of days ago, in dependence on him, they are the ones, we are the ones who can be granted these insights. The passage then closes with a private moment with the disciples and he emphasizes to them, he says, look, these blessings, these witnesses, these things you're seeing and hearing, it, well, he reminds them that even the prophets and the kings from the past, they, they longed to see, experience and witness such things, but they didn't in this full way. They didn't see it revealed in its fullness like this. And the same applies for us today. We're indeed blessed to have experienced the preaching and the teachings of the very Son of God himself and have the ability to see God's mission and work demonstrated through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the overarching lesson, not just for the disciples on that day, but by extension for us today, is that we too, in doing this, should simply find joy in God's grace and understanding his truth, and in witnessing that revelation of his Son to other people, and that we shouldn't fall into the trap of placing any emphasis on personal achievement or external success. The disciples are called here to rejoice together, but they're rejoicing in the fact of their relationship with God, Jesus with himself, even in his relationship with his Father God. And the profound truth he's saying to them is he's saying, look, you guys are witnesses, privileged witnesses to this, and so are we today. So here we have the full job description of what it means to be a disciple, a worker, a laborer for the Lord. I do hope that you find some help in this passage in fulfilling the mission that he's personally given you. Because in doing that in this way, you fulfill the job requirements that are stipulated here. So the overarching lesson, I believe, is to find joy in God's grace. Find joy and pleasure in understanding his truth and revealing it to other and witnessing the revelation of his son in the lives of other people. The disciples' journey here, I think, are meant to mirror our own. But don't forget it's all framed again within this call to humility and to dependence on God. It is only there that we can find true joy, true grace, and true success in terms of what God is expecting from us. So I hope you find today helpful. And do come back and join us as we navigate together through these timeless truths things that I believe are not just words on a page that are but things that are resonating with you in the essence of your Christian life experience and calling every day. So bye for now. Okay, we'll leave it there. Please reach out and connect with this ministry. You can do that by visiting us on the Bible Project at buzzsprout.com. That way, you there you'll find links to uh, 
extensive episode notes page, even a transcript of everything I've said, and even links to other places like the YouTube archive, the uh, social networks, LinkedIn. There's even a place called Patreon where you can connect with me personally and actually partner and support this ministry if you feel God's calling you to do that. But the main thing is, well, the main thing is the Word of God and this plan for you and I together to work through it and study it well at some depth, I hope. And I hope that you're being blessed by the Spirit of God for doing that and it's equipping you to serve Him and to encourage others to serve Him also. So thanks for being with me today. I do trust I'll see you back here again tomorrow. Why not subscribe wherever you're receiving this podcast from? That way you'll never miss another single episode. And why not, if you're appreciating it, enjoying it, give me a like or a share so other people are brought into, well, how shall I describe it, the orbit of the gospel that they too might respond in free will to it. So thanks again, and I'll see you very soon. Bye from me, Jeremy McCandless, from the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye now.